So welcome, everyone. We're really excited to present the second of our public lecture series. Uh, John Cobbettson kicked it off in October, and we're really blessed to have Joseph Goldstein with us this evening for the second of our uh, public lecture series. Uh, we'll be having a few more starting in the spring, so just look on our um, mailing list for those announcements. Uh, it's my great, I'll just, so I'm Judson Brum, the Director of Research here at the Center for Mindfulness, and I will just very briefly uh, introduce uh, Joseph because it's much better to hear him speak than me. Uh, so for those of you that aren't familiar with him, Joseph is actually, after finishing up the Peace Corps in the 60s, uh, stayed in Southeast Asia to study and practice uh, to learn uh, mindfulness and, and Buddhist meditation and was one of the first folks to bring that back uh, to the West. And as many of you know, is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, which is just down the street from us in Barrie, Massachusetts. If you aren't familiar with it, I would highly recommend taking a look at their website and, and their offerings. It's a really a, a gift, uh, not only for the Northeast, but for the world. Uh, they offer intensive meditation retreats ranging from day-longs to half uh, to weekends to what they're currently running is their uh, their three-month uh, retreat and uh, this is their 40th 40th three-month retreat that they've run which is really a remarkable feat in itself <laughs> <laughs> We were just adding up uh, the numbers at dinner. If you take that, that and push those all together, that's 10 years straight of meditation practice with uh, these practitioners typically ranging from 90 to 100 participants at a time. So Joseph, um, I asked Joseph if there was anything in, well, I'll mention one other thing, uh, which was that after the, this evening's talk, uh, Joseph will be doing a book signing with his most recent book. Uh, and this book was based on a series of talks that he gave at the Forest Refuge, which is the self-retreat center associated that's part of the um, Insight Meditation Society. Now, these series of talks, I think there were 46 or so, um, I started listening to these in 2008 and ended up, so these are a series of talks that are about an hour in length each. They were so powerful for me, I actually listened to the entire series four times in a row. And these talks are the basis for this really wonderful, uh, accessible, but also very deep book uh, that he uh, recently wrote. So I'd, I'd recommend taking a look at it if you're not familiar with it. It's really... Uh, wonderful. The last thing I'll mention was I, I asked Joseph if there's anything to make sure that he, we covered uh, in his introduction, and he said, well, just make sure that uh, people laugh at the appropriate times. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> without further ado, uh, Joseph Goldstein, and thank you all for being here. <clears throat> well, thanks, Judd, and <clears throat> Thank you all for coming on this cold pre-winter evening. Um, I thought we'd start with uh, short meditation. I'm interested, how many of you have done some meditation practice before? Okay, so we'll do a short practice for about an hour and a half or so. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it'll actually be more valuable than <laughs> anything else. <laughs> uh, so sit comfortably, as you know, uh, <clears throat> but in a somewhat alert uh, posture. And often we sit with our eyes gently closed, but if you're used to practicing with your eyes open, that's also fine. Take just a few deep breaths. Exaggerated breath is a way of settling into the body. Let the attention, let the awareness settle gently into the felt sense of the body sitting. You're sitting and knowing you're sitting. Keeping the eyes relaxed, the jaw relaxed, the shoulders, chest, the belly. Simply being with the felt sense of the body posture sitting. As you're feeling the body in this posture, you might become aware of the sensations of the body breathing. There's no need to narrow the attention on the breath. You can keep the general framework. There is a body. And within that, aware of the sensations of the body breathing. Very natural, very simple. Letting the mind, the body be relaxed, open, receptive. The body breathes by itself. Simply being aware of the sensations as they present themselves. felt sense of the body sitting, that knowing there is a body. You might become aware of the ambient sounds in the room, or the sound of my voice. Just aware of hearing.
aware of the sensations of the body breathing. There's no strong efforting that's needed. Simply being aware of what presents itself. Within that framework, there is a body. Sounds appear, the sensations of the body breathing appear. Simply staying alert and awake, attentive to what's arising. might become aware of other bodily sensations, perhaps of tightness or pressure or vibration or warmth. All appearing within that framework, there is a body, that general felt sense of the body sitting. Feeling whatever sensations there are of the body breathing. might become aware of different thoughts appearing in the mind or images. See how attentive you can be to the arising of these thoughts or images. You 
might make a very soft mental label, thinking or seeing, as a way of strengthening that awareness. Resting in the simplicity of knowing there is a body. Experiencing the felt sense of the body sitting. different sensations of the body breathing. sounds as they become predominant. Quickly can you become aware of thoughts or images as they appear? Is it right at the beginning? Is it in the middle of them? Do you become aware after they're already finished?
What is the quality of your mind at this time? Is there interest or is there boredom? Does the mind feel wakeful or sleepy? Simply to notice the quality, the mood, the mind state. Is the mind steady? Is it restless? It can be mindful of however it is. Coming back to the simplicity of knowing there is a body. Experiencing the felt sense of the body sitting. Within that grounding framework, there's a body. You become aware of the sensations of the body breathing, of sounds, of other sensations, of thoughts, of images. Simply aware of whatever presents itself in the moment. Relaxing the eyes, relaxing the shoulders, relaxing the heart.
That hour and a half went quickly, didn't it? I hope you got a sense of the simplicity of the instructions with respect to the practice of mindfulness. It's really this simple. You actually heard the instructions pretty much, um, not quite, but pretty much all the instructions for the three-month retreat. So <laughs> this is really all you need to know. <laughs> sitting or standing or in any posture and simply being aware of what's arising and then seeing what we learn from being aware. Tonight's talk, the title of the talk is What Mindfulness Is and What It Isn't. Because as you know and uh, mindfulness now has spread so such an amazing way, you know, through all uh, elements of our society in so many different fields. And a lot of it started, uh, the spread of mindfulness, you know, into the mainstream uh, really started a lot right here at the Center for Mindfulness and the work that's being been done here. It's quite amazing. When we first started teaching, uh, this was in 1974 in this country, hardly anybody knew what mindfulness was. You know, it was a very esoteric thing and if we'd be sitting on a plane next to somebody and they'd ask me, what do you do, I'd kind of squirm a little bit, you know, to say teaching mindfulness, it wouldn't have meant anything. And now, you know, it's on the cover of Time magazine and Scientific American, and it's really in the culture. So it's been an amazing trajectory of the spread of the teachings. So I was sitting in the staff dining room at the Inside Meditation Society one day, and some visitor came in, and <clears throat> we were sitting over lunch, and they asked me if I could describe in just a couple of words what mindfulness is. And I thought for a moment and it felt to me like asking what to say in just a few words, what is art? You know, what is love? Okay, here's, here's, here's three words on love. It's not so easy because mindfulness, even though it's a very simple and even prosaic word, you know, the word itself in English, it doesn't really have the cachet of words like wisdom or love or compassion, which the very words, you know, just imply their richness. Mindfulness kind of lands a little bit like a dud. You know, it's, it's not a sexy word. But the mind state it refers to the mindset that's actually being cultivated in its practice 
is hugely rich and hugely nuanced. <clears throat> and tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about or explore a little bit of the nuances of what it is and in some cases what it isn't, the things that can be mistaken for mindfulness. One of the things that first comes to mind, you know, if we were to, to try to say in a few words uh, what's mindfulness, a very common response might be, well, it's living in the present moment. It's being in the present. Uh, so that's a pretty good beginning because as probably all of you know, and especially since <clears throat> almost everybody here has a meditation practice, you're all very aware <clears throat> of how much of the time we are lost in thoughts of past and lost in thoughts of future, and how <clears throat> very, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> bad to cough with the mic on. <laughs> Sometimes very, very little time is actually spent in the moment. You know, because of this proliferation of thoughts. So the first response, what is mind? Well, it's living in the moment, not being so lost in past, not being so lost in the future. But this is actually not quite enough. Mindfulness means something more than just living in the moment. As an example of this, and I'm just using this particular example because I happen to love this particular breed of dogs. Are you familiar with black labs? Uh, so they're, it could be any, it could be any animal, but I, I like, yeah, they're playful and they're happy and they're always happy to see you and they're kind of running around. They are living in the present. They're not lost in the past. They're not lost in the future. They are right there in the present moment. But based on my astute observation of them, they don't look all that mindful. <laughs> you know, they're just kind of being led around mostly by their nose, you know, and having a grand old time, very much in the present but not really mindful. So mindfulness has to mean something more than just being in the present, or else we would all be practicing what I call black lab consciousness. Right? And so we're not doing that, or hopefully we're not doing that. There's a Portuguese poet named Fernando Pessoa. And I just happened to come across a book of his poetry and there was one poem which grabbed my attention and the title was very interesting to me. The title of it, of the poem was, is, Live You Say in the Present. Okay, in the first few lines of the poem, Live, you say, in the present, live only in the present, but I don't want the present, I want reality. 
So I thought, well, that's an interesting take, <coughs> take on things. How do we come to the reality? How do we come to a deeper reality <coughs> than simply living in the present? So we're not <coughs> confined by this black lab consciousness. <coughs> there has to be something more, something bigger, a further dimension to mindfulness. So then we might say, well, it, it is living in the present, but what we need in addition is a certain observing power of the mind. So that as we know what's happening, we know that we're knowing. Right? And this is something that black labs don't particularly seem to have. Okay, so my, maybe mindfulness is this observing power of the mind. We're getting closer here. You know, in our meditation, we'll often speak of, yes, observe what's happening. Right? And observe the thoughts, observe the breath. <clears throat> On one retreat, a woman came up to me uh, who was on the retreat and she said that uh, she had recently been on a cruise and in her room, you know, and we see this in hotels also often, you know, there was a map of the ship and then an arrow pointing and said, you are here. And she said that became her mantra for the whole cruise. Wherever she was, she would remind herself you are here. And so that's a kind of observing power of the mind. It's recognized, it's not simply being here, it's knowing that we're here. And so that's, that's another dimension. Another way of understanding what this observing power of the mind is, as opposed to simply being present, is an experience we all have very many times, and I'm sure you had just in the few minutes of meditation we did. It's seeing, it's experiencing the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware that we're thinking. So are you familiar with that difference? <clears throat> it happens a lot, right? We're very often thoughts are happening and if we're not aware, if we're not mindful, we're carried along on the train of association. So we're in the thought, we're in that whole thought process, and one could even say we're present in the thought process, but we don't know that we're thinking. So the observing power of mind gives us that extra perspective. You know, as thoughts are there or images or emotions or mind states, the observing power of mind knows that we're knowing them. This opens up the possibility then of uh, huge arenas of investigation. Through this observing power of the mind, we can really start investigating different aspects of the reality that Pessoa was talking about. I don't want the present, I want reality. So just as one little example of this, although there are countless and really our whole practice is about discovering what it is we learn from this observing power of the mind. It's not, 
we're not doing it for its own sake. It's doing it for the wisdom that can emerge from it. So just as one simple example, which is of tremendous interest to me, we'll see whether it's of any interest to you. When we're observing the thought process, <clears throat> in other words, thought is there and we know that we're thinking, a very interesting question for me to consider and to hold in those moments is the question, what is a thought? Not what is the thought saying, which is what we usually do. Our usual relationship to thought has almost always to do with its content. Right? And we, we're either lost in it, or we like it, or we don't like it, or there's strong emotion involved with it. But it's always about the content of it. When we're observing thinking, we can drop down a level and really look into the very nature of thought itself. What is it as a phenomenon? Now, the reason this is so interesting to me is that when we're unaware of thought, you know, we're just carried away in the trains of association, which are a good part of our lives. The thoughts we have have tremendous power. They are conditioning our minds, conditioning our actions, thoughts come, you know, go here, go there, do this, do that. And it's as if we're the slaves of thoughts. Sometimes I think of thoughts as being the little dictators of the mind. You know, and they're just driving our lives. Now what's so extraordinary about observing the nature of thought, not its content, so thoughts are happening and we're observing them <clears throat> and we're really looking into the nature of thought, what do we find? That the thought in and of itself is little more than nothing. It's just this little wisp of an energy blip in the mind as a phenomenon. Right? And so isn't this remarkable? that this process, which engages a huge part of our lives, when unnoticed, runs our lives. And when they are noticed, we see that there's not much there at all. In the seeing of this, this opens up a tremendous doorway of freedom for us in our lives. Because if we have really seen clearly into the essentially empty nature of thought, then as the different content presents itself, there's much more space to exercise some wise discernment. You know, is this thought worth following or not worth following? We're not so identified with it. We're not so locked in. We're not so imprisoned by the thoughts in the mind. So our lives get much, much simpler, much more spacious. So all of this comes from this observing power of the mind.
But this observing power of the mind is still not yet mindfulness. Uh, so this exploration keeps getting deeper. We need to be living in the present, but it's more than living in the present. We need to be cultivating the observing power of the mind in order to investigate all of the aspects of our experience. But mindfulness is more than just the observing power. Because we can be observing experience, and we often are, through many different filters in the mind. We can be observing experience through the filter of desire. We can be observing things through the filter of anger or aversion, or through the filter of delusion, you know, where there's just a cloudiness. We're observing, we're in that mode, but the observation is being conditioned by the particular mind state. So just a few simple examples of this. You know, when we're observing things through the filter of desire or wanting, there's something I call catalog consciousness. Have you ever made the mistake of opening a catalog? <laughs> And then turning pages, waiting for something to want. <laughs> it's remarkable. No, nothing on this page. Maybe I'll want something on the next page. And it's a rare person who can put the catalog down before the last page. Because maybe there'll be something I want. So that whole time, we may be observing what we're seeing, but it's all through the filter of wanting. That's not mindfulness. So mindfulness has to be, mean more than simply observing. Another example. So this happened. There are many, a long list of examples. This happened when I was practicing at a monastery in Burma. And I was, had been there for quite a while, uh, you know, in intensive meditation. And the whole body just felt open and a free flow of energy and light and felt pretty good. But there was one knot in the neck, you know, like that. And I was observing it and being with it. And I went to my teacher, Saida Upandita, and I was reporting my experience. And I said, you know, everything is really open and there's a lot of light, tingling, pleasant sensations, but there's this one energy block you know, in the neck. And I thought that I was describing the experience objectively. 
right? Everything's open, but there's this block. He pointed out that the very word, the very concept block contained within it desire and aversion. Just by naming it or holding it as a block, it implied, I don't want this, I want it to open. Right? Aversion to what's present, wanting something else. And in all that time, I thought I was being mindful of it because I was observing it. And I hadn't noticed that I was observing it through this filter of aversion to what was there and wanting something else. So you're beginning to see kind of the nuances of mindfulness. Mindfulness means the observing power of the mind, so that has to be there, but the mind that is free of desire and aversion and delusion. Mindfulness means we're seeing, we're with experience, free of those filters. And so it takes quite a lot of practice and attention to really check to see, okay, what is the attitude in the mind with respect to the present experience? And this is a very useful meditation technique. So in, in whatever way you're practicing, periodically, and it can be reasonably frequently, it can be very helpful to ask the question with whatever the present experience is, well, what's the attitude in the mind now about this? So we're remembering to check in, we're remembering to look. Oh, just another little example of this. And this is a completely ordinary kind of meditation. I was sitting, just feeling my breath. You know, it seemed very ordinary, very simple, very basic. Just sitting there feeling the breath. And then I remembered to ask this question, okay, well, what's the attitude in my mind? And that's not normally a question we would ask with respect to feeling the breath, right? Because it just seems like such an ordinary thing to do. But I asked that question, I was just feeling the breath. I asked the question, what's the attitude in my mind? And in the very moment of asking the question, I could feel a certain release. It wasn't even from getting an answer, it was simply from asking the question. And it made me realize, as I felt that slight release, I realized that even as I was simply feeling the breath, there was this subtle overlay of wanting, of expectation. I'm with the breath in order to get more concentrated or in order to become calm. It's that in order to mind. So again, when that's there, that's not mindfulness. That's being in the breath, seeing, observing it through a filter of wanting, of desire. It can be that subtle. So mindfulness is the observing power of mind, 
but it's a particular kind of observing. And this begins to bring us into the understanding of the ethical dimension of mindfulness. And this is something that maybe as it's becoming more widespread, this ethical dimension of it perhaps is sometimes lost or not talked about. Because according to the Buddhist teachings, mindfulness is always a wholesome state of mind. It's always skillful, which means that in a moment of mindfulness, the mind is free of greed, it's free of wanting, it's free of aversion, it's free of delusion. This is the tremendous purifying force of mindfulness in the mind. We're freeing the mind, we're deconditioning, we're weakening these unskillful tendencies. And there's one teaching of the Buddha which is so obvious that for the most part I think we overlook it or we don't pay attention to it. When he said, what we frequently think about or ponder or we could say what we frequently what is frequently arising in the mind becomes the inclination of the mind so if we are frequently lost in the wanting mind or frequently lost in the aversive mind I'm about to make a neuroscientific statement which I checked out with Judd beforehand so I think I'm on safe ground. What happens through repetition of these different mind qualities or states is those particular neural pathways get, I don't know, deepened, strengthened, either one of those. We're actually strengthening, we're deepening those grooves. What we frequently think about, ponder upon, practice, that becomes the inclination of the mind. So it's not as if we're going through our life experience and everything is just what it is in the moment and it has no repercussions. We are actually cultivating in one way or another the patterns and inclinations of our lives. So here we begin to see that mindfulness this is not just a hobby. You know, this is our life that we're talking about and the quality of our life and what patterns of thought and feeling and mind state are we inclining our minds towards? Are we developing patterns, deepening patterns of anger and aversion? You know, of desire, of wanting, of love, of compassion, of kindness. Every time we practice one of these qualities, we are deepening that groove, that pathway. So it's essential. I see, I see the practice of mindfulness You know, I, I was going to say it's, it's as essential as eating, 
but maybe it's not quite that basic since we would survive without it. But unless we're paying attention to our minds, to the qualities in the mind, you know, as we're going through our lives, we simply will be acting out and strengthening all the habit patterns of our conditioning. And some undoubtedly are skillful and wholesome, but there are a lot that are not. And unless we practice mindfulness and are paying attention, we don't have any possibility of observing what's going on and actually making choices. Ajahn Sumedho, who's an American monk who was in the Thai forest tradition and brought that tradition to the West, many of you probably know of him, he had a very uh, pointed teaching. He said, our practice is not to follow our hearts, it's to train our heart. And I think there's a big difference there because so much in our culture, you know, is encouraging, well, just follow your heart. And it sounds good. You know, and we respond to that, yeah, follow our heart. But once we take a look at our hearts, <laughs> we see there's a whole mix of qualities. <laughs> Unless you happen to be a saint, you know, with a totally purified heart, it's not simply following our heart because there's a lot of beautiful qualities, but there are some that are not so beautiful. You know? So we want to train the heart. through mindfulness, you know, when we really begin to pay attention to observe what's happening without the filters of wanting or aversion or delusion, then we can begin to see what's there and actually to make wiser choices. We could choose, we can choose, we really need to choose kind of the skillful states of heart and mind that are going to bring happiness to ourselves, happiness to others. We can choose to practice kindness. The Dalai Lama gave a great teaching on this. He said, practice kindness whenever possible. It's always possible. Just that. I'm, would that be a great way to go through the day? To have that really in our minds and our hearts so that we're being mindful both of that intention and mindful enough to see when we're not practicing mindfulness, or practicing kindness. You know, and it's, oh, yeah, no, this is a moment to hold back. We can do this hugely in the whole arena of speech. I mean, in our daily lives, we speak a lot. How often are we paying attention to the motivation behind our speech? Another just pithy little instruction that the Buddha gave with huge consequences. This is with regard to speech. He said, 
especially in speaking about other people, which for some reason we seem to enjoy a lot. He said, always speak in a way that brings people together rather than causes divisiveness. Just think what a change that would be. If that became, if that became our guideline for speech. Always speak in a way that brings people together rather than causes divisiveness. You know, practice kindness whenever possible. It's always possible. A few weeks ago, this, this is just another little story of intentionality. I happened to be in a department store. I was buying something. And I was at the checkout counter. And this older guy, he, he looked older than me. I, I don't really know, but... So let's just say he was in his 80s. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure how old he was, but... So he was, he was just in front of me, and he was checking out, and this, the sales clerk you know, got his package together and just in a very perfunctory way said, have a nice day, you know, as people often will. And without missing a beat, it, it was just so remarkable. So the sales clerk said, have a nice day, and he said, I intend to. <laughs> I loved it. You know, it's like he didn't just buy into, you know, have a nice hour you too. And it was a real statement of his intention about how to live. Right? Have a nice day. I intend to. So through mindfulness, we begin to see that within ourselves, we actually all have an inner remote. And we can change channels. You know, if we are mindful enough to see what channel is playing in the mind, and to know, and this is one of the meanings of mindfulness, is to remember or to call to mind what is skillful, what is not skillful, what is wholesome, what is not wholesome, what leads to peace, what leads to suffering. So part of mindfulness, and this is part of the richness of it, we need to learn both through study, but even more importantly, through our own experience, we need to learn and remember to call to mind, oh no, this mind state, this is not skillful. You know, this is, this is just strengthening anger or wanting or whatever it may be. Or we see a moment of genuine kindness, you know, or love or compassion. We recognize that as this is a skillful state, this should be cultivated. And so it's mindfulness which gives us this power you know, to choose. And this is an ethical understanding suffusing awareness, suffusing mindfulness. It becomes the foundation 
than for the choices that we're making. Okay, this could go on and on and on, but I'll just close this part and then we can have a time for questions and discussion. A friend of mine was leading mindfulness training uh, in California. It was a six-week program for second graders. So that itself is pretty remarkable. And after the six weeks, they had these young yogis, these young meditators, evaluate the program and talk about what their experience of mindfulness was. So this is some of their comments from the second graders. Mindfulness helps me get better grades. Mindfulness helps me calm down when I get upset. It also helps me with sports and to go to sleep at night. Thank you for teaching mindfulness. Mindfulness changed my life. Mindfulness really gets me calm. This is my favorite. Mindfulness is the best thing I have done in my life. <laughs> in the second grade. <laughs> and the last one is, I love mindfulness. <laughs> so, just a, a quick, a quick recap. So mindfulness, it is living in the present, but it's more than living in the present. It is the observing power in the mind, but it's more than simply the observing power in the mind. It's observing with skillful attitude in the mind. It's observing without the filter of greed, of wanting, of aversion, of delusion and checking the attitude in the mind so that when those are present, we actually know they're present and become mindful of them. And so this is what makes possible really the discovery and the training of our hearts, of our lives. If you have any comments or questions, we have some time for that. three or four mics that we can pass around. And so what we can do is, if you just raise your hand, if you have a question or a comment, we'll put two mics on this side of the room, two mics on this side of the room. You just raise your hand and the mic will make, it, it make its way to you. So who would like to kick things off? Hi, my name is Jameson. Um, I, uh, I'm what they call an inactive addict. So um, I suffer from addiction. Um, I'm here um, hoping to uh, try and see if uh, practicing mindfulness will help me uh, with my addiction uh, problems that I've suffered pretty much my whole life. 
Um, that's why I'm here. I'm hoping you can uh, maybe explain how uh, that could be incorporated into my current regiment of uh, NA meetings and things like that. Can everybody hear the question in the back? Good. Uh, the question was about how mindfulness can help with addiction, basically. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but this is precisely one of the fields that Judd is investigating and working on. Alana has developed uh, some very specific programs, mindfulness programs, dealing with this. So if you haven't connected with him yet, at some point it would be great for you to do because this is his field of inquiry and expertise. So I'll just speak a little generally about it, but you can really go to some depth you know, in discussion with him. I mean, in a fundamental way, some level of mindfulness is essential because we need to become aware. And, you know, we can talk about this in terms of strong addiction, but even in terms of just more ordinary desires. You know, it's the same principle. We need to be aware when that impulse or when that desire arises in the mind before uh, we're taking action, before we're acting on that desire or impulse. If we're not aware of it when it arises in the mind, as we all know, the hand's in the refrigerator before we knew, know how it got there. You know, the impulse, the habit, can be so strong. As the practice of mindfulness gets stronger, we become aware of that desire in the mind arising. And in that space of mindfulness, then there is a possibility of some wise reflection. There's possibility of uh, a wiser choice. So mindfulness actually creates a space in the mind before action takes place. That space is critical. You know? And the, the stronger the mindfulness, the more stable the mind is in that space. And it's very, it's just extremely interesting uh, and important, in, in some cases, extremely important right, to begin to understand that process. So I'll just, one little tool that I used, and this goes back many years. Uh, and this is just one small tool among many, you know, that have been developed. So there's, there's a lot of uh, expertise in this matter that you should really avail yourself of. Um, but this goes back maybe 40 years. Uh, when I was a mild smoker, which from the perspective of today seems, why would I do that? But I did. And as Mark Twain said, it's easy to stop smoking. I've done it thousands of times. <laughs> and that was kind of my experience. <laughs> you know, yeah, stop. So 
for myself. And I have to say, this was not, I, I would classify it as a mild addiction. So just so you know the frame of it, it wasn't. But the mantra that I started using for myself after I saw that pattern of stopping many times, the one mantra that really helped me, uh, it actually was a way of calling up mindfulness with some strength. I would just use the mantra, not even one. Because that was always the seduction for me, and you know, we, we're all conditioned differently and you may have different patterns than that, but for me at that time, that was the seductive thought. Oh, I'll, I'll just have one. And of course, then I was off again. And so every time that urge came and it took being mindful, you know, before I was reaching for it, it, it took being mindful, oh yeah, this desire, and then wisdom voice, oh, not even one. And for me at that time, that was enough. Again, people, you know, the addictive patterns are at varying degrees of strength and intensity. There are many other tools as well. But I think that's how mindfulness uh, fits into the whole uh, deconditioning of that very strong habitual pattern. Uh -huh. We have to be aware of it arising in the mind before the action takes place. And that's really what the, the meditation practice can do. Thank you. But do check out. The, there's, a, there's a lot of skillful means here to employ. Thank you so much for your wisdom. I have a question about uh, mindfulness and race and people of color. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you know, in the, in the last few years, uh, I would say the last five years, six years, at IMS, the Meditation Center, just as a whole organization, we've really made a commitment to diversity, to understanding racism, to trainings in undoing racism, because for very many years, as you may and probably are aware of, like people coming to retreats, it was mostly a white audience. In recent years, as a result of some of the work we've been doing, that has been changing and it's been remarkably wonderful. For me, what was most striking about doing all this work, uh, and it was on every level, it was on the board level, it was on the staff level, I was shocked to realize how unaware I was. You know, it was 
it was just mind-blowing <laughs> how unaware I and, and many or most of my colleagues were. So there's a, been a huge learning curve. And this ties in in so many ways to Dharma practice. You know, because there are two wings of the teachings. There's the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion. You know, and in our practice, we really are developing both. So what's the, what's the condition for compassion to arise? The condition for it to arise is a willingness to come close to the suffering that's there. If we don't come close to the suffering, there's not the possibility for compassion to arise because compassion is the response to suffering. So in all this work that we've been doing, and it's really been an education, and we've been trying to educate ourselves about this issue, is just to become more open to the reality of the suffering that's out there because of racism, to become more conscious of our own ignorance with respect to it. And I'll just share one story which just it encapsulates it a little bit. It's, So a friend of ours who's on staff at IMS is from Australia. And she was here and she had a green card and she was working. And she recently uh, became a US citizen. And she went to the ceremony and she said it was, you know, where there were hundreds of people who were getting citizenship that day. And she said it was a very moving ceremony. And whoever the main speaker was, I, I don't know whether it was a judge or a politician or somebody, who was very involved in this whole process of people immigrating to the United States, he asked this group of you know, hundreds of people from all over the world, you know, so many countries and uh, different racial background, ethnic background, he said, what's the best thing about becoming a US citizen? And so some people said, I don't know, there's all kinds of different answers, you know. Oh, now I can partake, you know, in politics, I can vote, or the opportunity, or whatever. A whole bunch of answers. He said, no. The best thing about becoming a U.S. citizen is you no longer have to think about immigration. And when I heard that, in the context of our whole understanding of racism and undoing racism and realizing, you know, one of the phrases that's used in this work, which sometimes is a trigger for people, but actually is very pregnant with meaning, part of understanding this whole dimension of our society is understanding kind of the inherent white privilege 
that exists that's structured into the society. You know, and sometimes in first learning about all this and getting familiar and even being easy to talk about it, if, if you had asked me this question five years ago, I would have been really nervous. You know, it would have been very tentative. But I've so come to appreciate the importance of the work. We don't have to, as white people in this country, we don't have to think about race. It's not, and often we don't think about it. And it's not an issue for most of us in our lives. And yet, in all of these discussions, you know, with the people of color now on our board and on staff, and you know, this is really a topic that we've been exploring to realize, no, this is a huge issue for people, who will, a daily issue for people. And I began to see, yes, compassion means opening, being willing to open just to the reality of what's there, to the reality of the suffering that exists, to the prejudice that exists, to the discrimination that exists, because if we can be open to it and willing to come close to it, then there's actually a possibility of some movement, you know, and some change. If we're not willing, if, if we just stay closed off, that is really living in delusion. We're just not seeing, as for most of my life I had been living in that delusion. I had just not been aware, you know. So it's a, it's a very uh, important and inspiring arena for me and hopefully for the whole spiritual community. Yeah. So I don't know if this is exactly addresses what you were... Uh, but it's, it feels like a really important arena for our practice. Hello. Hi, right here. <laughs> I'm Jason. Hi. I just want to acknowledge how grateful I am that you're here tonight. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. And... Um, I, I was struck by some words, and it may just be semantics, but um, you said as part of the definition that you gave for mindfulness that it's uh, present moment awareness as an, an observer, but without anger, greed, and delusion. And um, I was wondering about that because I feel like I've been practicing mindfulness with occasionally conscious awareness of anger. Or knowing that, yeah, I'm conditioned. I'm, I can't help but to be conditioned. So I'm aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, but you said without. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. So what does that mean? <laughs> no, that's a great question and, and an important one. And here we're getting into really the subtlety, some of the subtleties of meditative practice. it would be interesting for you to really investigate and look, yeah, we all, these different emotions arise. And the instruction is be mindful of them. You know, if anger arises, be mindful of the anger. Or if desire arises, being mindful of the desire. 
So it would be very interesting for you to really observe carefully. Suppose we're caught in some storm of anger. And then you start observing it and maybe even noting it or, you know, acknowledge, oh, anger, anger. Pay attention to whether in that moment of observation, you're angry. I think you'll find that in that very moment, you're not angry. You're actually, you're, you're being mindful of the residue of the previous moments of the anger. And then in the next moment, you may be caught up in the story again. And then maybe there's another moment of being mind, oh, anger. Do you see it? I, yes. So the feel, I can feel the tension in, or the heat or the pressure from the anger. Yes. But I understand and that it's, that's the physical sensation. Yes. It's not the thought driving. Yes. It's not that wispy thought. You're and it may very well be that even the emotion, the full emotion of the anger comes back if you know, you're mindful of it and then you're lost again in it. But then at a certain, oh no, anger, anger. So it's to see that in that moment of mindfulness, the mind is not actually angry. And that's, it's by punctuating, if you, you could say it's by punctuating that cloud of anger with these points of mindfulness, it begins to disperse the cloud. However, there is a further subtlety here that is worth paying attention to. So I'll use a different emotion because it's one that, um, I worked with a lot in my practice over the years. So the strongest afflictive emotion for me, the one that came up the most in my practice uh, over many years was the emotion of fear. Just, you know, I could see a lot of fear arising in my mind. And it wasn't fear necessarily about anything in particular. It was just felt like the primal energy of it. There were times when it was so intense, you know, and this was in times of intensive practice, the fear, the emotion was so intense that I was afraid to go from sitting to standing. I mean, it was completely irrational. You know, the, it, was, it was on a completely different level. It was just on some primal energetic level of experiencing the rawness of that emotion. So I've been watching this and observing this for a long time. You know, fear, 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 and I would note it and I would observe it. But it still felt like it was really locked in. And I had this thought. I was creating a whole self story around this fear. You know, oh, I'm such a fearful person. This is going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind. And, uh, you know, so I was just building this whole story of self, you know, being identified with this fear. And then one time I was doing walking meditation, having been with this a long time. You know, this, this was over the course of many years. I was doing walking meditation and something shifted in my mind. And that shift was expressed in the thought, 
if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was the first moment in all those years that I genuinely accepted it. All the time before, I was observing it. I was recognizing it, but it was always in order for it to go away. Because it's painful, it's, it's not a pleasant emotion. And so you think, well, of course we want it to go away. But in that wanting it to go away, that's not being mindful. I was confusing recognition with mindfulness. Right? These are two different things. I recognized it, but I was not accepting it. And it was amazing. Just in that moment, oh, if this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. It's as if this whole cloud, this whole mass of fear, it just washed through. And it's not to say that this emotion doesn't arise again, but the whole relationship to it is different. Right? It's okay. And that became one of my favorite mantras for lots of things in meditation. It's okay. It's okay. We're feeling a lot of discomfort in the body. It's okay. It's okay. Just let me feel it. It's okay. You know, and that kind of coaches us into that quality of mindful acceptance. So that's kind of a long answer to that Thank question. You. Thank you. Hey, this side is out questioning this side. <laughs> <laughs> This is on? This is on? Okay. Um, something that you were talking about, tools, and I don't know if this goes outside of the mindfulness thing, but I have, um, I have uh, had a tool that I've used many, many times having to do with um, affirming and... Um, uh, medita uh, meditation teacher Ruth Fischel and a friend of mine um, taught me many years ago about this practice and um, and I really found it to be um, really uh, changed it changed it changed my pathways because not only was I thinking it ten times a day I was writing it and I was reading it and so there was this whole 21 days, 10 times a day, consecutively. If I missed a day, no big deal, just start again. You know, no judgment. You know, just keep on keeping on. Um, and I, I don't, you know, is, is, would you say that that would be a tool of mindfulness in action? A uh, couple of things. <laughs> Uh, one is um, I think I'd need to know a little bit more about what you were actually doing you know what the because I, I haven't done affirmation practice per se so I well I can tell you that uh, it's pretty simple um, it's a, a personal positive powerful possible and in the present moment, a statement um, that's written 
10 times a day for 21 consecutive days. So it doesn't mean that's actually happening, mm -hmm. but we are claim, I am claiming that it is, it exists. Um, so. Okay, so first let me say, within the realm of spiritual, emotional, mental development, there are huge range of practices across many traditions and many techniques and many methodologies. One of the uh, reference points I use uh, to evaluate, one of the reference points is, does it work? So it's just taking a very pragmatic, you know, if something works and you find it helpful, there we go. <laughs> it's helping, yes. it's, it's helping <laughs> you in your life. From the perspective of uh, the understanding of mindfulness within the context of the Buddhist tradition, it may be a different practice. Right? So I'll just give you an example of something that may sound similar, but it, it may indicate the nuance of the difference. So one of the practices that we do, uh, you call it an associated mindfulness practice, not, and that is uh, the practice of loving kindness. And so when we're practicing, which is a wholesome, skillful, beautiful mind state, when we practice loving kindness, it's either for ourselves or for others, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may you be happy and healthy. So what's important in the context of that practice is not so much the belief that it's happening. So this is where it may vary a little, be a little different than you know the practice you're doing, but what's the importance is given to the motivation behind the wish, that that's really what we're cultivating, the wish for ourselves or others to be happy. So there's a slight difference in approach. Uh, so. But I think in both cases, it, it, you know, it's, it's energy and it's, it's outward and it's change and it's love. As I say, <laughs> If it works and it's developing skillful, wholesome, beautiful qualities, it's great. Okay, maybe just a few more questions. Okay, all the way in the back there. Last, last row. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for this wonderful um, teaching and all your teachings. Thank you so much. Um, following on what you just said about if it works, <laughs> I work, um, have worked with adolescents and young children, and um, there's a lot of technology out there that's talking about teaching mindfulness to everyone, not just, but the kids especially, since I've now reviewed the world's literature on apps for mindfulness. <laughs> uh, I'm interested in in your comments or just observations about that, I just recently um, 
one of my students brought me a device that's really a processed EEG from what I can figure out. And it's, it's wait, a way... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I know. <laughs> processed DEG, what does that yeah, mean? Yeah, it means it's sort of a way to see your brain waves and in a little built-in computer inside to kind of recognize different states, you know. So forget the terminology. Right. It's right. basically, to me, it's a little bit of a kind of biofeedback. Yes, yes. But it's, everything is being kind of now labeled with mindfulness in, <laughs> in a lot of ways that are confusing for me <laughs> and confusing for other people as well. But on the other hand, they have been helpful too. So it's a little bit of a conundrum there. So I just was wondering what your thoughts were about that. Thank you. Well, this is one of the reasons I wanted to give the talk I did, you know, in trying to unpack a little bit, you know, some of the different elements of what may be called mindfulness, you know, and see uh, just the different aspects and uh, the further potential. So I think what's important as it spreads, and as you say, all these technologies and different techniques that are proving of value, you know, in many situations, uh, I think what's important is that at least to some extent, and as great an extent as possible, people who are using them at least have the opportunity to be trained in an understanding of the fuller potential of mindfulness because there could be a great value in a particular uh, situation uh -huh. and there is so much more that is possible in terms of understanding the power of mindfulness. You know, and so I think it's great what's going on, and I hope that the fullness of what's possible, and it's really in the, in the deepest sense, you know, and this is in the context of the Buddhist teachings, mindfulness is the key to liberation. Mindfulness is the key to awakening. So it's not simply about leading you know, a more peaceful, happy life, which is a great thing in, in itself, you know, and whatever contributes to that is wonderful. But there's also so much more. And I just hope as it's spread, uh, that understanding also makes its way out. So people may start with it in a very specific application, and maybe that can become the doorway you know, to further exploration of what it means and its transformative value. Okay. Yeah, I think... I, um, <clears throat> I wonder um, often if, if one has experienced a, a wrongdoing, a trauma, and one can... Um, treat oneself with loving kindness and the ethical teachings of mindfulness tells one to treat others with loving kindness but if in doing so 
that makes one open to that wrongdoing and trauma again. Right. So how, how do you balance yeah, yeah, that? Yeah. Okay, this is a really important question. And, um, and it's interesting, just as mindfulness has spread so much and people are looking to it, a wider range of people are being drawn, you know, to the practice of it. What we're finding at IMS, you know, at the retreat center, is that a significant number of people are coming to practice with some pretty deep traumatic experiences in their background. And so we've really been learning a lot about just this whole arena of experience of how mindfulness and loving kindness can help, of where its limitations are. So there's a lot. This is, this is a very uh, deep, important, delicate issue. So I'll just say a few, a few things about it. From the point of view of people uh, using mindfulness or coming to retreat, uh, very often this material starts coming up, you know, and sometimes in very powerful ways. One of the things we've learned over many years now is that this is not a situation where, yeah, dive right into it, go to the heart of it. It's not, it doesn't work that way. Part of what has to happen is learning very gradually and very slowly, it's like to titrate how much is coming up, how fast can the mind stay balanced with it, is it overwhelmed by it. So there's a lot of delicacy in learning how to have a loving attitude towards this very painful material. And it has to be done very gradually, very slowly with a lot of care. So that's on the side of the person experiencing it. On the other side, you know, if we're practicing loving kindness, how do we practice loving kindness for people who may have perpetrated a huge amount of harm, you know, and may in, even in an ongoing way. So clearly, it's important to take oneself out of harm's way. So that being given, then how do we relate internally, you know, to these people? So I'll just share a little story about this. I was teaching a retreat very soon after 9-11. And it was a mindfulness retreat, and then we got to the point where we were teaching loving kindness. There were a lot of people from New York on that retreat. And we would, you know, send loving thoughts first to yourself, and then a benefactor, and a friend, and then even to extent to what we call the enemy, or the difficult people. Well, I mean, for most of those people, they said, no way. 
there is no way that I can extend loving thought to the perpetrators, you know, of that violence. So it really, it really made me think a lot and reflect a lot, well, what does loving kindness mean in that context? Does it have meaning? Because the Buddha talked about it as being a boundless quality that can embrace all beings. But here it's up against, I don't think so. So in reflecting on it, I came to see that it actually is possible, but the wish has to be expressed in the appropriate way. So for example, in that situation, could we, could we make the wish for those beings or all beings, may you be free of hatred. May you be free of enmity. Is there anybody that we would want to exclude from the wish to be free of hatred or to be free of harmful action, doing harmful action? It's like wishing for people to be free of those very qualities that make them do the harm, you know, that, that are conditioning. So in that sense, there's nobody who we, we would want to exclude from that. Wouldn't it be a fantastic world if everyone were free of hatred? If everyone were free of ignorance? So I think that there is a way actually to include beings at the right time, you know, and, and maybe it takes a little time to get there, but to reflect on what wish, you know, could be inclusive even of people who are doing harm, which is the wish for them to be free of those mind states which are causing the harm. So that just over as a possibility, you know, this can't be rushed, you know, and the whole, the whole process of, uh, just letting go of one's own anger at the situation or whatever, whatever emotion might be there, which is understandable. The whole process, of letting go of that internally, that's a very gradual, delicate process, but it's possible. And we've worked, we've worked with a lot of people, you know, in this situation, and there have been some remarkable uh, transformations where people really have become healed, you know. Thank you all.